This is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, episode 15. Oi, 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 Gavalt, Jews and Punk. As you can tell, I'm clearly recording outside. It is a beautiful Sunday afternoon in New York City, and I am sitting with my friend, Michael Crowland. How's it going, Michael? It's going well. Thank you, Patrick. Happy to be doing this interview with you. So, uh, we've had some fun today. So, we went to Klezmer Brunch, which was sweet, and we saw a band called... Lit Vacus, which plays Belarusian Klezmer music. So, you can tell this is going to be a great interview. So, Michael Crowland is the author of Oi, 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 Gvalt, Jews and Punk, which is out on Prager. Um, so, Michael and I have a, a long friendship. I don't actually know how you and I met. It's, oh, I know this story. Tell the story. Tell the story. Um, it was around 2008, 2009, when I was running a blog called Even Vegan about Judaism, animal protection issues, and whatever else I wanted to talk about, including punk rock. And Patrick, you must have seen one of my blog posts talking about Jewish punk bands, and you were out promoting uh, Can Can, which mm-hmm. was your band yeah. at the time. And you reached out to me about Can Can, and uh, I wound up writing about Can Can on Heben Vegan, and it grew from there. We I, we saw each other all three times that Can Can played in New York. I was at your ordination here in New York, so. Um, goes I slept back. on your couch. You've, you've slept on my couch. Uh, we went along to with shul the, together. We went to shul together. That was a fun day. Um, and that uh, that is partially discussed in Punk Torah, the first anthology, the first collected writings. What is the official the, title? Yeah, the first anthology. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is true. I haven't thought about that book in a long time. I need to put that back out there and let people know about it. Um, this is great. So we've had you know this really nice uh, afternoon. It's been a while. Since, actually, my ordination was the last time. Sorry, Joe. And that was about three years ago because it was the 29th and today's the 26th. So crazy. Happy uh, ordination anniversary. There almost. you go. Uh, so you know you have this question here that you answer in your book, Oi Oi Gavalt, Jews and Punk. You know why did punk, a subculture and music style characterized by a rejection of established norms, appeal to Jews? So in your book, which um, uh, in all transparency I am in this book, uh, I think I'm sort of like the second, it's kind of like, I think of like your book as being like a festival, and I think I'm the second to last band uh, in, in, the, in the book. I think, I, I think that's about where I am, because I think there's one more chapter after well, the one that... Well, y- you come up in two different places. You come up, of course, musically as part of Can Can, and then in greater depth in the last chapter um, as part of Punctura. And there is an appendix after that last chapter, sure, but... Uh, I would say that as far as the actual chapter structure, you are the last subject of the last chapter. <laughs> it, when, it all boils it, down in the end to Rabbi Patrick Aleph. <laughs> wow, that's that's simultaneously... Uh, everything builds up to <laughs> yeah, you. Everything builds up to me. I think that there's a lot of people in the Jewish world that'd be frightened by the idea that everything builds up to me. But, um, okay, so... Uh, as you can tell, there's lots of noise in the background and stuff because we're filming on the street. So, how punk is that? Um, so, Jews and punk. What's the? Where did that idea come from? 
It started in 2005 when the Australian punk rock band Yidcore released an album covering the full Fiddler on the Roof score with punk rock versions. I pitched a review of that album to the editor of New Voices magazine, who asked if there was a larger context for Jews and punk. She said, if so, I could write a feature. So there absolutely was. I wound up writing a feature article, and even after it went to print in 2005, I kept learning about more bands from Total Passover to Gefilte. I can't even say the second yeah. word because we're censoring it. It's a clean podcast. But it begins with F and it's not fish. And I kept learning about more bands. I started to see these bands in 2006. The Forward um, let me write an article for them covering a punk Hanukkah tour in California that featured Jew Driver and Yidcore um, and Jericho's Echo, a wonderful documentary about punk rock in Israel was representing on that tour as well. That's and the it, Liz Nord. Uh, correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah great film. And I, it just grew from there over the course of a long period of time. And I got a book deal in 2013. But in terms of the question you were asking me before, what do Jews and punk have to do in common? Well, first of all, in terms of the history of punk rock, many of the pioneers of punk rock were Jewish. You had two members of the Ramones, the original lineup, you had all the original members of the Dictators, members of Blondie, Patti Smith Group, Television, uh, Hilly Crystal, Hilly being short for Hillel, who ran CBGBs on the Lower East Side, not that far away from where we are right now. Um, you know, we're all Jewish, and I talk about that in my book, the prominent Jews in punk rock and the extent to which Jewishness informed their identity, informed their lyrics and their music. Uh, but the sweet spot for me, what I'm most passionate about, and, and the real reason I wrote this book, are the punk rockers, both musically and beyond, who put their Jewish identity front and center. So bands like Yidcore, who were hilarious and culturally Jewish and drew a lot on comic shtick, uh, to bands like Moshiach Oi, which are a religiously Jewish band that put their Jewish identity front and center. And I take that beyond just music. I have... Uh, documentaries like Punk Jews and Jericho's Echo, novels like um, Never Mind the Goldbergs by Matthew Roth, whom I know you know quite well, yeah. uh, and rabbis such as uh, you. <laughs> well, so this is an interesting question of for me of what is Jewish art, and it seems like there's a tendency in Jewish art to do shtick and really to do parody. Right, so, like, you can't... The, the theory would be you can't have Jews in punk rock because Jews aren't tough. So if you're going to have a Jewish punk band, it's going to be Gefilte. Right, yeah. The word it begins with the letter F. It's a four-letter word, and it's not fish. Yeah. Um, or, or you're going to have some band... But it's going to be comical. And not even comical in a, like, you know, sort of no effects... You know, some like you know, or uh, me first in the gimme gimmies or something like that. But it's literally going to be look at the sweet little Jews trying to play punk rock, and it's interesting in your book that you dispel that 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 that's not a thing. Right. I mean, first of all, you talk about toughness, which is definitely definitely a theme that comes up with a lot of bands, especially hardcore bands. Uh, there were Jewish hardcore bands like Sons of Abraham, Mensch, Fear of a Blue Planet. Um, Shabbos, bloody Shabbos, and of course Moshiach Loy, uh, where toughness is definitely something that they're playing with, this idea that Jews, just going by 
pure right. stereotypes are weak or nerdy or mama's boys or scholars or rabbis and those are very different stereotypes in a sense but what they have in common is they're not tough they're not hardcore certainly and in a sense where that is cool and bad and all those things right and i think that for many of these punk rockers let's focus on the musicians uh whether they are in prominent bands like Joey Ramone and Tommy Ramone or the Jewish hardcore bands that I just talked about and this is true for punk rock and hardcore not only hardcore that it is a way of rebelling against that stereotype for standing up for yourself and being seen and being in a way tough and is toughness something to strive towards well that's something that every individual has to decide for themselves but I think that for a lot of these artists the their attraction to punk rock is as a way of rebelling against that stereotype of Jews as weak. So what was your attraction to punk rock? For me, in the first place, it was about good music. I got into it through a lot of those bands that people say aren't real punk rock bands. I got into it in the first place because of Offspring and Green Day and Blink-182 in the 90s. Then I started going to underground shows. Then I went to college in Pittsburgh and got into Anti-Flag, which is a political punk band from Pittsburgh. I got into bands like Flogging Molly and Dropkick Murphys and later Gogol Bordello that were expressions of ethnic identity through punk rock and that were, like Anti-Flag in a sense, intelligently talking about messages at times, whether that was politics with Anti-Flag or culturally speaking with Flogging Molly, Dropkick Murphys, Gogol Bordello, etc., that it was a way of expressing ideas. And then when I did get into Yidcore around 2005, to me that felt like a very natural fit, that it was a band expressing its ethnic and cultural identity through punk rock. So, you're not a musician, to my knowledge. Not by any serious standard, no. But, but you did do some music recently, from what I remember. I am the singer of an ad hoc punk band called Anti-Trump that is true, where I <laughs> basically, um, California Uber Alice by the Dead Kennedys in the 70s is this song that imagines this dystopian vision if then, and now again current California Governor Jerry Brown became president and all the terrible things that would happen. And one day I was air guitaring to it and singing it in the elevator, coming down the elevator at work, and I realized this is the template for what would happen if Donald Trump became president. And this is still during the Republican primary. It wasn't a sure thing. I'll admit I wasn't any fan of Ted Cruz either. And I'm like, I've got to just write the lyrics to this. So I was on the subway and I just wrote the lyrics to a parody of California Uber Alice called Donald Trump Uber Alice. And I reached out on Facebook. Are there any punk bands that would want to record my song? I didn't give specifics at that time, just that it was a anti-Trump statement. I had one band, I won't name them, from California that expressed potential interest. And then I had a couple of friends who live right near me in Astoria that I'm, I know through an Astoria Jewish independent minion. And one played guitar, bass, and could do home recording, and one played drums, and they play in other bands, and they wanted to do it with me. And it became this ultimate example of, if you want something done, DIY, do it yourself. So 
you know, I, I sang in a band as a teenager that wasn't a great band and where everybody <laughs> quit because I didn't know what I was doing. I sure as hell didn't know how to play guitar. Um, but it became this example of, well, I have the lyrics. I, I can sing, not well, but I know how to use my vocal cords. And I'm going to get the message out there. So check it out. Uh, look it up on YouTube. Anti-Trump, Donald Trump, Uber Alice. Um, you know, I, I don't pride myself as being a musician, but I think it's that old punk message of DIY. Well, and so let me ask you about that, because I think that this is something early on in my punk Torah days that I bumped up against, and it seems like it's something that Jewish musicians who are playing something other than whatever Jewish musicians are supposed to play, whatever that stereotype is. You I mean really the show we just went yeah, to? Yeah, the show we just went to, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, but... Um, um, DIY, I think, is something for Jews that can be tough because it seems like in sort of the Jewish mindset, we're really into the idea of experts. And we really like the idea of people who are educated and can either do for us or can um, represent us or whatever the case may be. And when you try to do something DIY, particularly if it's not within the bubble that you're supposed to be in, there's a pushback of sort of, well, wait a minute, you're not a singer or, you know, who are you to write song lyrics? You're not a, a you know, musician or, or you know, uh, I remember it, it's kind of funny, this woman said to me, you know, this punk tour thing is never going to take off unless you're, unless you have a rabbi working for you. Like you need a, you need a rabbi who can, you know, sort of sign off on everything. And the joke, of course, is that I said at the time, well, no, like no one, we're never going to have a rabbi and, and I became a rabbi. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's the part of your book where I talked about being a sellout. But in any case, um, do, you, do you think that there is something, though, within the Jewish mindset that we we trust expertise and maybe in certain ways are kind of afraid of DIY? You could argue it both ways, and it comes down to the old expression, two Jews, three opinions, and that's more than a joke. It's, it's a way of saying that there is no one right way of doing things in the Jewish tradition. Uh, is there a tradition of respecting authority and rabbis, which is very deserved? Absolutely, of course. But there's also what I would say is a tradition that very much is in sync with DIY. Look, with Punk Torah, many of your listeners are going to know this. You know, that is a great example of doing your own thing, making it accessible for people in their own way, in a way that goes outside the existing channels or, or platforms that, or, or venues that Judaism is happening in, and making it accessible for people at their level. And uh, you know, as you told me back in the day, being your own rabbi or giving people the tools and the knowledge and the way to learn without a specific agenda of prescribing a specific strain of Judaism to be learned in their own way. So certainly you, you know, more than perhaps anybody else in the book, uh, have, have led the way with that. But beyond that, you know, something I talk about in the uh, beginning of the book is how there is a trend. It's more than a trend. There is um, a way of doing things in the Jewish community in recent decades that is not about religion being bowing down to a high, uh, a high authority figure. That very much goes beyond that. Specifically, um, I cite the research of 
sociologist Stephen M. Cohen and talking about how Jews are being the arbiters of their own Judaism in terms of personal meaning and how some people that he and one of his colleagues had talked to said that Judaism requires them to choose what they find personally meaningful. Is that what the stereotypical rabbi is going to tell you? Perhaps not, but even this idea of a stereotype and there being one way of doing things, I think is just not reflective of the way the Jewish community is right now. You have independent minyanim, which are people taking it upon themselves to find community and to pray and to be Jewish in their own way. You have that certainly represented in Jewish culture, whether that is just one band of musicians coming together and doing playing the music that they want to play, or whether it's, you know, um, the films I talk about in my book or, or the novels. Um, you know, I think DIY and punk have a lot in common and often get conflated, but there, there's more to DIY than punk rock. You know, there's DIY auto repair, there's DIY crocheting and so much more. <laughs> and within the realm of music, I think that a lot of bad, you know, Klezmer isn't the most commercially mainstream successful type of music, and I don't say that in a condescending way. I say that it's a type of folk music where people are fighting to keep it alive, and you know, doing it in their own way and pushing for it in a way where, sure, there are things like we just went to Klezmer Brunch where there are venues and it's wonderful, but, you know, to start off and be a Klezmer band, it's not that anybody's looking to offer you a million-dollar record deal. So I think that there are examples in Jewish culture in terms of individual religious practice of people doing DIY by that label or not, and I think that is common within the Jewish community. So... What's the future of, of Jews and punk? What do we what do we have coming down the pipeline? It's well, like the real all, exciting stuff. First of all, to say what the future is when it's not determined by any one authority, when it is about individuals taking things on their own, I don't know, and that's great. But beyond that, look, the book came out in April, um, and by that point, there were already bands that I couldn't include in the book because I had finished writing the book, right. and I couldn't update. There's a band in L.A. that put out an album last year called The Jew, I can't even say that name probably, <laughs> um, but they are a Jewish punk band out of L.A. Yeah. I found out about the Debaucherants, who are a klezmer fusion band where punk is definitely one ingredient in the stew, and I did an interview with both of those bands on my blog, um, and they're based out of Seattle. There is a brand new Yiddish pop punk band, which even the, that phrase is music to my yeah, heart. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um, out that's of Chicago, crazy. called Asher Yatsar. And, <laughs> and, Can you tell them what Asher Yatsar is? Asher Yatsar is the yeah, prayer so that great. one it's says so after going to the bathroom. bathroom. So, yeah. you know, they played their first show in March, and my book came out in April. They're not in the book. And, you know, the drummer who co-founded the band, Dave, happened to be in New York um, the day of my book release party and got to see my presentation, got to see Moshiach Oi, which is one of the bands prominently featured in the book, play. And, you know, he seemed, he didn't just seem to be, he told me it was one of the best days of his adult life. That's so, awesome. That's um, awesome. You know, does that mean that there's a scene in an organized network sense? No, there isn't. Will there ever be? I don't know, and that's not really the point. Right. Um, we have these different bands, both talked about in the book, 
from a while ago and present day and bands that have formed since then that are doing this. So what comes next? I don't even know. I have a Google alert set up for Jewish punk and a month ago I found out that there's a 20-year-old kid in southern New Hampshire who's looking to put together a Jewish punk band. And he, did, <laughs> he didn't get back to me when I said, I just wrote a book about this, keep me posted. But, you know, I hope he does something and I don't even know who he is. Nice. That's but there's a- other stuff going on besides what's in a book that just came out. Right. That's incredible. That's absolutely awesome. So, you know, so, so you had your blog, and you had written about Jews and punk. So how does the process of going from being a, a blogger and now you've put out a book, I think that a lot of people, when they think about authors who have put out books, it's like that is such a monumental task. How do you go from, you know, you're writing and you have an interest in all of that to being published? What, is, what does that look like? Well, for, uh, for one, at a basic level, because the, my story isn't going to be any template that I can recommend to any one aspiring oh, writer. I was so close. Yeah. I was so close um, to fooling you, Michael Carlin. You've got to have passion and drive, absolutely. And I could tell you just from working in publishing as a day job that it does help to have experience writing in any number of uh, ways. If it is nonfiction, to be an expert in your subject, to get a literary agent, literarymarketplace.com is one resource in Writer's Digest that I often recommend. Uh, In my case, you know, certainly I had been writing about this topic for a number of years on my blog, for the Forward, for the New Vilna Review, for uh, New Voices Magazine, and I had been learning more and, and developing that passion, developing connections, for lack of a better word, with many of the people, including yourself, who would come to be featured in the book. It just so happened that, um person who would wind up becoming my editor was somebody that was a friend whom I had worked with through uh, a job, and when she got a new position as an editor for pop culture books, she posted on Facebook that she was now looking to acquire books about punk rock, this and that, and I just thought, like, oh my gosh, this opportunity just fell out of the sky, so... Um, I like to publicly embarrass her. Her name's Becky Matheson, and she did a wonderful job as my editor, and she was a dream to work with. Um, In a sense, you know, you talk about DIY, because she was very supportive of this being my book and me doing it the way I wanted to. She absolutely gave many suggestions and criticism and, you know, talked about things that librarians were looking for, and we worked on it together collaboratively in a sense, but she was very much supportive of me doing it myself. Not in a, like, you do it, you're, it's your work, negative way, but in the sense that, you know, this is your brainchild, go forth and make sure that it's what you want it to be. So she was very supportive and helpful with that. So, yes, I, I knew somebody um, who became my editor, and you could say I got lucky, or you could say that networking is about being in the right place at the right time, and you never know who's going to lead to what. So, speaking of networking, I can tell you that Michael knows what's up, because I have my backpack with me um, as I'm kind of waiting to check into my hotel, and I see Michael across the street, and he's got a messenger bag, and I was like, I wonder why he has a messenger bag, didn't really think anything about it, and then we're at the show, and the band finishes their first set, and we, we needed to leave. And uh, I see him with his flyers, and he's going up to the band and, like, you know, showing them the flyers and talking to them, and he gets a sticker, you know, from uh, from their merch table and all this other stuff. And I thought, 
you know, that is so punk rock. I mean, the fact that you, it's it's like you, it's like going to a show and bringing, you know, the the flyers for your gig. You know, same exact same exact idea. How much of what you are doing to promote this book uh, sort of reveals a punk attitude? That is a great question. I'm so happy you asked. And no, we didn't rehearse this in advance. Um, You know, I, I think that there is a lot of that ethic because, you know, maybe I'm not your most experienced stereotypical punk rocker, but certainly my experiences over the last 10 years, I've learned a lot about the punk ethos, and hey, I just wrote a book on it. Um, so let me answer the question then. Um, I, I, you know, I talk in the book about Schmeckel, which is, uh, was a transgender Jewish punk band that was the epitome of DIY, that silkscreened their own t-shirts, that built a recording studio in one of their members' apartments, that recorded their own music, that wrote their own music, that played their own music, that, um, didn't have a record label that released their own music, that uh, booked their own shows, did their own publicity. And there are other examples. The Shondas are another great example. I don't know if they ever silkscreen their own t-shirts, but, you know, of, of doing many of those things themselves. Um, and of all the punk rockers that we might think of, it comes to me uh, from an example of a book I was working on and reading the other day about good old Ed Sheeran, who is not a <laughs> punk rocker, but who has a very tireless DIY ethic and comes from an independent music background. And he was saying, good old Ed Sheeran, that, you know, networking isn't about by accident. If you have, and you know, you got to put yourself out there. And if it, if you happen to be at a place while you're networking and meet somebody and they give you an opportunity, it's not by chance or by accident. It's because you put yourself there. Now, I, I'm not quite going out and gigging, as he would put it, in the same way that Ed Sheeran is. And, you know, I'm not a musician, and, uh, you know, this isn't even my full-time job as an author. But what I would say is, yes, you got to be inspired to put yourself out there. So I did come home that day and think, like, yeah, I haven't been getting as much press as I want. And then I thought about, well, you know what? I, people are interested in events. So then I did another round of reaching out to event organizers who might be interested in doing an event and hoping that that would, you know, lead to more publicity. And certainly, you know, my publisher has been very supportive, but I've been the one who, you know, my cover wasn't up on Goodreads, so I was, I asked my publisher, do you do this? No. So I get in touch with Goodreads, and I make sure that my cover is up there. And those are any number of examples that have just happened in the last few days. But sure, it is about, um, you know, doing it yourself and not expecting anybody else to do it for you. I mean, frankly, the uh, example you gave of me having a flyer with the band that we just saw wasn't because I was pushing it. It was because I was prepared and happened to bring the flyers with me just in case. Not that I bring them with me every day, but I figured going to a Klesmer show, you never know. I'd rather have it with me than not have it with me. Someone said, I think it was actually like Oprah Winfrey or someone like that, said that uh, luck is uh, preparation meeting the moment of opportunity. Sure. So there definitely might be something to that. Actually, I know for a fact that there's something to it. So, okay. So is there anything else, you know, related to the, the book that's going on? Do you have more events coming? Do you, do you have things you want to do with it? Sure. Uh, at this point, I've done a couple of great events. One was being the Shabbat guest speaker at a conservative shul out on Long Island, and one was my huge 
by huge, I mean 75 people, book release party, <laughs> somewhere between, my mom says it was over 100, I don't really know in, the number. In the punk rock world, I mean, that is huge, right. so, you know. Uh, book release party at my synagogue in Manhattan, where Moshiach Hoy played a full set after I did my presentation. Um, I've got a presentation coming up at the New York Public Library that I haven't officially announced yet, but I guess I just did. It's uh, uh, August yeah, 23rd, did. Manhattan Branch. It's not on their website yet, but it's happening and it's free. August 23rd at the, the Mid-Manhattan Branch of the New York Public Library, free 6.30pm, and it'll be up on their website soon. Alright, New Yorkers, you're um, going to have to go to that. But I'm very fortunate to be working with the Jewish Book Council, and I just spoke at their conference a few weeks ago and was very fortunate to speak to Jewish event organizers from across the U.S. and Canada, and they are working on their invitations. I will be hearing back as early as July and August, and I won't name name, uh, name cities yet because nothing's official, but there were people from several cities across the country that came up to me and were very enthusiastic and got that at the core, yes, this is a book about music, and if you're a fan of punk rock and you're Jewish, you should get the book, but it's also a book that tells stories of Jewish humor, Jewish pride, Jewish identity in an alternative, outside the box, against the grain way. And it's about people doing that through art, punk rock, and as well as other channels, novels, documentaries, zines, and two rabbis, if you could believe that, Patrick. Um, <laughs> I still need to meet the other rabbi. Who's wonderful. I finally met her, Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg, um, about a month ago. She just put out her seventh book. Um, seventh. Seventh. So wow. She's written two and was the editor of co or co-editor of another five. So she's great, and you know, I, all right. While we're at it, you know, she is somebody who came from a punk rock background and was not particularly observant, and came to Judaism uh, around college, uh, almost from a philosophical standpoint, which grew to religious studies, which grew to Judaism and got ordained as a conservative rabbi, and for her, knowledge is power, and it was about empowering herself, whether it's through feminism or any other lenses, to say, okay, I am knowledgeable about this, and we can change, let's say, things in um, ketubahs and marriage law that are holding back women, when we have the knowledge of what Jewish law says and how it's been interpreted through the years. And I think that is a very powerful way to go about it, and that was DIY. And I think a lot of times people would hear the words conservative, uppercase C conservative, and rabbi, and think of authority figures, and oh, that's not punk at all. First of all, read the book, because that is such a not black and white topic. It is so nuanced, and I delve into that extensively. But, you know, she's somebody who issues dogma and talks about that extensively about how dogma holds us back and you know you do it with punk Torah and in your own way and she does it as a conservative rabbi uh, and there are different ways to go about it but I think the ultimate message is one of knowledge is power and we can be empowered Jews doing it ourselves that's amazing. I think we'll leave it at that. That's the perfect message. The book is Oi, 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 Gvolt, Jews and Punk with uh, by Michael Crowland out on Prager. Uh, you can get it online because that's where all books are purchased now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, through the ABC Clio. That's the parent company of Prager website. Very cool. Thank you. And uh, so uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you. Appreciate you. Wonderful, beautiful day. Good to hang out with a friend. This has been the Rabbi Patrick Podcast. Bye.